Now, if you really want a challenge, next week, come and sit 13 feet away from where you normally sit, and then you'll have to meet a whole bunch of people you never met, because uh, I know uh, how we all are creatures of habit. Uh, but we're glad uh, to be here. If you're new to Christ Bible Church, my name is Randy. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great privilege of uh, working uh, through the text of Ephesians 2:11 to uh, 22 uh, this morning. And so if you'll turn with me to God's Word in the book of Ephesians, uh, we will read uh, this together. This is the Word of God. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we see your word here in Ephesians 2, we are reminded. We are reminded of your transforming work, and, and we plea as your people this morning that indeed Paul's words here at the end, that you would be building us into a dwelling place for yourself according to the work of your Son through the power of of your spirit. And so, Father, we commit this morning to you and ask that you would help our minds to perceive and our hearts to be aware of that which you seek to teach us and the ways you seek to shape us, that we might be a holy dwelling place for you. And so, Father, thank you that we can gather as your people, that you encourage us this way, and we ask that you would work in our midst this morning. Amen. Before somebody can understand the end of this section, we first have to understand where they were. You want to know how you got here? You often have to start with where you started. And so Paul, in the book of Ephesians, here in chapter 2, is going to walk these people in the second half of the section uh, through the process to which they have become a new people. Now, there's an acronym that helps us. I stole it from somebody uh, as I was by chance I ended up having a sermon pop up in my podcast feed I was working out. I'm like, I think he just read the verse I'm preaching on this weekend, which is always terrible. 
You never want to hear somebody preach on what you're about to preach on because then you start second-guessing yourself. Uh, I had this nice three R's that I thought was helpful, and I was like, ah, he's way better than me. Uh, So here it is. It's ART. A-R-T. It's an acronym that helps us break up this section of what God is doing. A, you were alienated. So verse 11 starts with at one time. You were alienated. Verse 13, but now you are reconciled. And then we get all the way to verse 19, you have been transformed. So then, you are a new people. A-R-T, art. This is the progression that God is going to work in the lives of his people. But we have to step back and look at the wider context. All of this is even situated him. We see in chapter 2 here in the book of Ephesians, Paul is trying to help these people remember what life looked like prior to Christ. And so he says at verse 11, who were you? You once were what? You were aliens. You were foreigners. You were strangers. You did not know God. You were not his people. The result of that was a distance, a separation. They were strangers to the covenants of promise and ultimately without any hope. It was an existence, as Paul is writing here, that was meant to be a reminder of the path that these people, and even us today, were once on. However, many of us, as we begin to read this, and we look at this, these verses, specifically in verse 12, when he says, remember that you were separated from Christ, many of us in here struggle to follow that command. What does it mean to remember that we were once separated from Christ? For the most part, Christian conversion isn't this dramatic experience. Yes, that's happened for a few people. The Apostle Paul comes to mind. You're headed one way, dramatic, instantaneous change of direction. But for most of us in this room, we've had a slow and steady transition. Perhaps we grew up in a home uh, that loved the Lord. We went to church week in and week out. We had parents who read scripture to us. We had friends who poured God's word into us and prayed for us. We had a life that we were exposed slowly and steadily to the truths of the Christian faith until at one point we found ourselves desiring God rather than desiring the things of this world. We didn't realize what was happening, but God had been working until we get to this point where we realize we have become something new and we say, I belong to God. And we make that wonderful confession of faith. That is often the path that most of us have been on. And so when Paul says here in verse 12, remember what you once were, those of us that have had this long, steady transition, who have grown up in the church and have been exposed to Christianity every day of their lives, like myself, we struggle to actually remember. But Paul is inviting us to do something important here. Look back. This is a good exercise for all Christians to do. Look back and remember what God has saved you from. Looking back at your former life is always good unless you look back like those were the glory days, right? So if you played sports in in high school or something like that, I never, I attempted to play sports in high school, so I can't even say high school was my glory days, all right? There's often this idea, when I was 16, I could do anything. I was fast, I could with, you know, get hit by whatever I wanted and get right back up on the football field, and now, you know, I'm 40 years old, 50 years old, uh, and you feel every single joint uh, as you move 
during the day. And if we're not careful, we look at our life previous to Christ, our spiritual life, in the same way. We say, God has redeemed me. I'm a new person. I don't live for myself anymore. But we look back and we're like, man, remember those days when I did all those fun things apart from Christ. Yeah, they were bad. Uh, This is a dangerous temptation. What Paul is asking us to do is not look back longingly as our past was our glory days when we were apart from Christ. Remember all the sin we partook in. He's saying, look back and shudder. Because you remember what you once were. And if we take time to honestly do this, we begin to see the roots in our life, even those of us who grew up in the church, as, as these roots uh, of what once was, an alien whose destiny was ruined. I grew up right around the corner from this church. This was an orange grove when I was a child. Some of you know uh, my history here. Four different houses within a quarter mile of each other, uh, just on Deer Valley Road right here. Uh, shotguns where most of you guys live in West Wing and Vistancia. Uh, This was a free place. Uh, But the result of that was everybody knew everybody in these neighborhoods. It was like a small little town. And so now, as I'm still here in the same neighborhood I grew up in, what happens is with some frequency I run into people from my youth, whether students I was in grade school with, at Apache or Frontier or other schools that I went to, whether it was Sunrise Mountain High School, sometimes even teachers that I went to school with. And every time I run into these people, there is a self-awareness that I begin to shudder, especially if they're my server at some restaurant. Uh, Why? Because when I look back on my life, when I was 12 and 13, 14, even though I grew up in the church, even though I had parents who loved me, even though I professed faith in the Lord, I sought to follow his commandments Who was Randy at age 12? Who was I at one point in time? I was self-consumed. I was arrogant. I was judgmental. I was a young man that did not treat everyone well. And so when I see these people, I'm painfully reminded that their view of me is somebody I would never want to be known as. But it's also a wonderful reminder that if God had not intervened in my life, even though I didn't have this dramatic transformation, I would have been as one without hope. Previously, our lives testified that we did not belong to God. And so when Paul invites us to look back and says, remember who you once were, we look back and remember, if we're honestly able to see our lives, that there indeed, at some point in our life, was a desperate need for God's grace, even for those of us who grew up with the blessing of a Christian home and a Christian family to raise us. We have to remember what we once were. This is the beauty as Paul begins to set up the expansive work of God. If you want to truly see and understand what God has done, look back first and see who you once were. And chapter 2 opened up how in verse 1 you were dead. Now in the second half of this section, he says what? You were without hope. You could sum up all of chapter 2 to say something like this. Previously, you were strangers to both God and to God's people. But what what has Paul said in chapter 2? God has brought the stranger in. The foreigner now has refuge in God's people. You were alienated, but now we get to verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, those who were far off have been brought near through 
the blood of Christ. You were aliens, but now you have been reconciled. God has reconciled the hopeless ones, the aliens, the strangers, but the question becomes, to what? Well, God has reconciled these aliens, these strangers, both to himself, this is the first half of chapter 2, and now to his people. His reconciling work is vertical, which is verses 4 through 10 here in chapter 2, and now horizontal, verses 13 to 17. And so we should be, remember, we should be uh, reminded today as we focus in on this second half of chapter 2 that we can't get to the second half of chapter 2 without chapter 1. You have to be reconciled first to God before you can be reconciled to God's people. He is our peace. He is the one who has made us both one. So what does it mean that God has reconciled? What does it mean that he brought those who were far near? It means that the things that kept people away from him and away from his people, he has removed. And indeed, there were walls that separated man from God. The sin that was in everybody's life, the corrupting work of sin that had distorted the way they thought, the way that they worshipped, kept them from approaching to God, for no corruption can be in the presence of God. And so God worked to reconcile us to himself by grace, verses 5 and 8. But now to the one who was far off and has been reconciled to God, he's now been reconciled to a people. Not only were there barriers keeping this far off person who was apart from God from God, but now there's also walls that were separating the people who were far off from the people who were the people of God. And as the New Testament uh, readers are hearing this letter, they are reminded that there are indeed very physical things that kept the Gentiles from being part of the Jews. However, part of God's saving work was saving a people for himself. And so part of the amazing result of what God has done is not only do we as people who were far off, who were dead, have now access to God, but we also have access to God's people. He has broken down the walls that separated the, the aliens from the citizens. How did he do this? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now we might read this, and this causes us to pause. And it should. If you just gloss over this, you miss a huge piece of what's going on here. You fail to ask a significant question. And indeed, as I was working through this, I had to spend a significant amount of time this week trying to figure out just what is Paul saying here? What does this mean about the Old Testament and the Old Testament law? I immediately recoil because I remember a few years ago when a famous pastor in the United States preached a sermon about unhitching from the Old Testament. It created quite a stir in the American church, and rightfully so. But then we get here to verse 15, and we read the word abolished. And it causes us to pause and say, okay, what exactly is Paul saying about the Old Testament, about the Old Testament law? We know that Christ is our peace. He said this. Paul said that he's broken down the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And if we're being honest, this sounds a little bit like unhitched. But we say that can't be 
the case. And so we must take time to understand what Paul is saying and isn't saying about the Old Testament here in verse 15. And I want to start by saying the unhitched in the sense that someone might advocate for leaving behind all of the Old Testament is totally off base. Those of us that read Paul's words here might struggle because we remember Matthew 5.17. And what does Jesus say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so now we pause and we say, okay, wait, hold on. In Christ, Paul says, he's abolished the law. Jesus himself says, I did not come to abolish the law. Is Paul out of step with Christ? Is there something wrong with Scripture here? Some people begin to worry. No, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we must say, if Jesus is saying this and Paul is saying this, what they are talking about isn't quite the same thing. When Jesus is talking, Jesus did not say, don't follow the law. What he's pointing to is saying, I am the one who will follow the law perfectly. I am the one who will save. Christ alone is the one who indeed was able to fulfill the requirements of the law and in doing so become the perfect sacrifice for those who have been by nature unable to keep the law. So what is Paul getting at? Well, if we step back and we go all the way back to verse 11, we start to see some hints. We see that Paul has a little bit of patience that's growing thin with those who required the law to continue. When he's talking and setting up this whole section uh, in verse 11, and he says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, comma, aside, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, another pause, Paul is making a further distinction because he's frustrated with this classification, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul is fighting against this idea of the circumcision party. Now, if you read the New Testament, what you will begin to see is that as the Christian church began to grow, there's two sects within this Christian church. Those who required Gentile converts to take the law and become the law, undergo circumcision, follow the ceremonies, all of these things, in order to become a part of God's covenant community and therefore ultimately be saved. And Paul constantly, in all of his letters and in the book of Acts, is pushing back against this, saying, no, circumcision doesn't save you. You don't have to follow the law in that way. The law does not save you. Paul is pushing back against this. You see, for those that were a part of this circumcision party, a fleshly distinction, as he has pointed out, thought that following the law was a condition of being in the covenant community with the people of God. But part of what becoming a new people means is living in light of a new reality. A new man has been created. What Paul is pointing to here is there is a new classification. Who are God's people? This is the question we might ask to help us understand verse 15. Are they the Jews? Are they something different? What Paul is saying is now there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The classification isn't Jewish or non-Jewish. The classification is, 
Are you in Christ or not in Christ? This is the two segments of society that God's new covenant community should begin to view. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? This has nothing to do with ethnic heritage. And so in reconciling a people to himself through Jesus, God has restored that which was divided. There were people, God's people, scattered throughout the world who couldn't come and worship God and be part of God's covenant community because of this. But Jesus has broken down those barriers. This means that as Christians today, we don't have to follow the ceremonies or, or are even under the condemnation of the law. Christ has fulfilled the full requirement of the law on our behalf. And so we must ask, what is being abolished? Paul clearly has something in mind because he wouldn't use such a firm word if he didn't think something was being removed. Well, uh, Peter O'Brien in his commentary, I think, sums this up very well. It's helpful to say that what is being abolished is the law covenant. That is, the law as a whole conceived as a covenant. It is then replaced by a new covenant for Jews and Gentiles. Because the old Torah, or law as such, the law covenant, is gone, it can no longer serve as the great barrier between Jew and Gentile. Simply put, the people of God now are not under a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Paul understands that the Old Testament law and ceremonies are not what makes a person a part of God's covenant community. The only thing that determines if they are in this community is if they are in Christ, if they have God's saving grace set upon them. Paul is not advocating here for a dismissal of the Old Testament. And indeed, in other books, he appeals to the Old Testament and the Old Testament law as uh, supporting his position or implications for morality. It's clear that the Old Testament forms in Paul much of his thinking and the basis for his arguments regarding Christ. And indeed, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. What Paul is saying is that in the reconciliation work of God's grace, he has taken away that, that which kept those on the outside outside. In the new covenant, God has made a new people. He's taken Jew and Gentile by his grace and reconciled them in Christ to create a new nationality. The result of this reconciliation is not that those who were Gentiles might become Jews and thus become God's people. The result is a brand new people, God's true people. The people of God are those who belong to God. It's no longer an ethnic distinction. Further evidence for Paul's value in the Old Testament, as well as position that these new people are indeed heirs to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is finding its fulfillment in Christ, ultimately is found in verse 17. What's verse 17? When he says those who, he preached to those who were far off and those who were near, it's actually a quote from Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 19. And in this chapter of Isaiah, what is Isaiah talking about? He is talking about a Jewish people who are apostate. They've forsaken their God. And yet God is going to come and preach good news or hope to these people who have abandoned him and forsaken him and bring them back into his community. 
But the Apostle Paul here reads back into Ephesians 57, 19 and says, the meaning is expanded in light of Christ's work. He has made a new people that are God's true people. And those who were far off are not just apostate Jews who had forsaken him, but indeed those who were strangers to the covenant of promise found in the Old Testament. The things that they didn't even know they were strangers of now belong to them. What does this mean for us? It means that although the law has been dealt with in full, we should seek to find wisdom from the law. Wisdom about how God would have his creation live. Wisdom about who God is and what he has done. The Old Testament is filled with the promises of hope for God's people. To ignore them would be foolish. The people that the New Testament reveals, God's people, will no longer be based on outward appearance or genetic heritage, but rather by inward and spiritual transformation. We should go to the Old Testament and find hope and direction for our lives. Those who were foreigners to the promise are now heirs of that same promise because they have been marked by God, as God's covenant people by the blood of Christ. Furthermore, it means that part of what Christ has done is make us holy. To ignore the Old Testament or to ignore uh, what the law teaches would be to seek to, to abandon what God has revealed for his creation. It doesn't mean we have to follow everything exactly. Right? I'm pretty sure this shirt's made of two different uh, fabrics. It would be a violation of God's law, and yet I no longer have to worry about uh, judgment or separation from God's community because I'm wearing a shirt that Gap makes with who knows what you know, materials. Right? A misunderstanding of the law instead leads to a religion that says I must uh, work to become holy. I must do these things and practice these processes. And so some people misunderstand the law here. But what has Christ done? What is Paul saying? In chapter 2, you are already holy. You have been redeemed. You have been marked as his covenant people because you are in Christ who has perfectly obeyed the law on your behalf. That doesn't mean you get to live in rebellion to God, doing whatever you want because Jesus obeyed the law. But no, it means that we get to strive to honor God because of what he has done. He has transformed us. He has made us holy. And if we remember those words in verse 10 of chapter 2, he has created us for good works. The law reveals what these good works and principles even are. And so finally now we can turn our attention to the implication for God's reconciled and redeemed people. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers or aliens. You are something new. You are a trans formed people. You're no longer strangers or aliens, but he says you're fellow citizens, members of God's household, you have a new family, and finally you are a dwelling place of God. What has God been doing? Well, he's been making a people for himself. If we go back to the book of Genesis and remember that lonely man in the land of Ur named Abram, this old man who had no children, no heirs for his family, and yet, what did God do? He called this man out of it and said, I will make from you a people for myself. God is doing the same thing today. Calling men and women from all corners of this world, men and women who have no hope, 
who are from all nations, all classes, all ethnic groups, all different statuses of economic standing. And he has, in Christ, brought them all under one roof. This alone sets us up with tremendous opportunity today. In August, we preached through critical theory here and and a biblical response to that. One of the fundamental things we see with critical theory is this desire to understand everybody in little tiny segmented classes, right? Well, you have this, this is your reality, and this is your reality, and this is your reality, and this is your reality. They want to divide. But as we see God's work, what is God's ultimate work? He is making a people for himself. Where the world seeks to divide, Christ seeks to unite. And so when our society is hyper-focused on dividing and pitting everybody against everybody else, we must remember that God's plan was to take those who were divided and fundamentally against each other to break down the wall, to bring them together, and to create a new family, the most diverse family on earth. We could go to any corner of the world today and find brothers and sisters who find hope in the same God, who read the same exact scriptures, and who sing hallelujah, hallelujah, the Lord is good. We should find comfort in this and point our society towards this. For the very fabric of society before us is being torn apart as people are pitted against each other. We have the unique opportunity as a transformed people who say God has taken us from all walks of life, from all different categories, and brought us together to make something new and beautiful. The message that we can bring to those in a fragmented society is that God wants to unite them. He doesn't want to divide. Think about the transformation. He desires to bring people who have nothing in common. I mean, apart from Christ, I probably wouldn't talk to any of you. Right? And I don't mean that in a bad way, but there's no reason I would have ever run into any of you in my entire life. But because of Jesus, I come and I see your smiling faces. I find encouragement from you. Some of you hug me. Other of you wave at me, you know, right? I don't know why. We'll figure that out later. Uh, but w- what is happening? God has brought people who would be total strangers together and made a new family. You were separate. You were alienated. You were strangers. You were hopeless. You were without God. But he transformed you not just into a new person, but into a new family. And indeed, his dwelling place. And so this morning, if someone were to ask you, where does God dwell? How might you answer? I asked my daughter this last night, right? And it's always, you want to find some fun answers to anything, ask a six-year-old. So I asked, I said, Hadley, where does God live? And she points, heaven. Okay, good, Hadley. Where else does he live? And she's like, honestly, dad, you know, like I thought I was off the hook here. And then she, she, she sits sitting in the car thinking as we're driving, and she says, well, he lives everywhere. You know, he's, he's here on the earth. He's everywhere. And I said, okay, Hadley, that's good. Like, God is everywhere, you know. This is part of his character. Where else does he live? And she's like, you could just tell, like, honestly, Dad, like, I just told you everywhere. What place exists outside of everywhere? And finally, she understood what I was getting at. 
And she said, he lives in here. He dwells in here, in my, in my heart, right? What, what do we mean by this? What does the apostle Paul mean when he says you are being built into a dwelling place? Part of our fundamental reality as Christians is that we are literally dwelling places of God. We are indwelt by the Spirit, and we manifest His presence into this world. His dwelling place is no longer a building, but it's His people. And so we might read Psalm 84 and rejoice. And Psalm 84 says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing of your praise. When the psalmist writes this in the Old Testament, he's thinking of a literal temple. But now, as God's people, we read Psalm 84 and see a fuller expression. 1 Peter 2.5 might come to mind when he says, You yourselves are like living stones being built into a spiritual house. Where is God's dwelling place? It is with his people. And he is using his people to build an eternal house. What are the implications for us then? First... All this means that we belong to a people. As Christians, we are not called to live in isolation. We are saved and reconciled to both God and to his people. We should seek to live in community with our new people. One of the marks of being in God's love, of knowing that his love is set upon you, is a desire to hang out and be a part of God's family to attend a church, and to covenant with them. Part of what we proclaim is we gather each and every week as a body of church full of strangers who had have nothing uh, to do with each other apart from church, which binds us together, is proclaim that this is an outward expression of an inward transformation. These are my people. You are my brothers and sisters. That is the new reality. And so when the world drives by and sees a church, what they are seeing is this is a people God has set aside for himself. These are brothers and sisters who labor alongside of each other, who care for each other, who know that they once were enemies of God, that they were not his people, but they have been transformed and become his covenant people. The fact that churches gather week in and week out is a testimony that God has changed people and called a people for himself. It's become fundamental to their identity. And so we might ask, what does our identity say about to what and to whom we belong? If we were to audit our schedules and our priorities, what would they say about who we belong to? Do we belong to God and his people? Or are we owned by something fundamentally different? Is our identity someplace else? Second implication we might draw from this is to say that we are blocks that are meant to build up the presence of God in this world to see. As Peter pointed out, living stones that God is joining together through the Spirit in order that we might become a powerful testimony of the God who has transformed us. The problem is, we hear these words and say, you're stones being built into a holy temple, 
And we look around this room or we maybe attend other churches and we see other uh, believers from time to time in events and we're like, you know, the shape of those stones doesn't really jive with the shape of my stone. And I understand that you're building a holy dwelling place out of your people, God, but if you could not build with that stone over there, you know, that one can be a part of the outhouse. We'll be the, we'll be the main sanctuary here, right? We have this thought in our mind. But what uh, Paul is saying here is that all of us together are being built in, in, into a dwelling place for God as his people. This terrifies us because we don't honestly want to be set in a dwelling place forever next to all the people that are Christians. We kind of begin to shudder. We say, we don't fit well next to that person or that person. They don't really get along with me. But we must ask ourselves, do we have the humility to see ourselves as Paul asks us to see ourselves? What we once were. That we were people who were alienated but have been brought in and transformed. And indeed, people who are still constantly being transformed in order to be a useful building block in the dwelling place of God. Or do we have pride that is set in that says all these other stones are the stones that need to change so they fit with my stone so that we can build a truly beautiful building. The church is meant to sharpen and encourage one another. Are you willing to be sharpened and are you willing to encourage? What does your relationship with God's family say about your identity as a new man who has been transformed? Do you allow other people to correct you? Do you care about your brother or sister in Christ enough to correct them, to challenge them if they are on a harmful path. We must ask ourselves this. If we are a family, we have a responsibility to each other. Do we let other people speak into us, and are we willing to speak into our brothers and sisters? Finally, I think an implication of this we should draw is that we should be a people of compassion. God has transformed us from a lowly place to become a piece of his tangible presence in this world. We must never forget who we once were. God has brought those of us who were far near, near to him and near to others. As a result, we should be a safe haven for those who are far off. We are the dwelling place of God. And so would the psalmist say about us that we are a place where even the sparrow would find rest? Would the person... The person in John 4 that's been divorced five times and is now living with someone who is not their husband, trapped under the weight of their mistakes, would they find peace? Would they find Christ at Christ Bible Church? Would the person who has sought to stop Christians from being able to speak in the public square and instead by force, fall, fall, uh, force them into following that which is not of God, like the Apostle Paul, find a people who might redeem him and speak God's love and patience to him at Christ Bible Church? What about the person who is so self-righteous, who knows more about God and the Christian life than anyone else? Would they find at our church brothers and sisters to chisel away the hard edges of their life that they might become helpful and productive members of God's family? Or would these people find those who would chase them away, who offer no mercy, nor kindness, nor patience with them as they desperately need to experience the transforming presence of God's grace in their life? 
we should all ask ourselves, what can we do to make CBC a place where the weak, the downcast, the aliens, the strangers, the hopeless can find rest, can ultimately find Christ? A good heart evaluation as we end this morning would be a thought exercise. How would you respond if next Sunday you're sitting down ready for church, presumably you're sitting down before church and not talking in the lobby like you all like to do, right? You're sitting down, imagine yourself sitting down, you're on time to church, you're sitting down. I know it's hard, let's, let's get there. Uh, just kidding, uh, right? Uh, you're sitting down in church and in walks somebody. They stink of desperation, they reek of immorality. They sit right next to you. How do you respond? You might even smell whatever they were up to the night before on them. Do you look at them, eyes askance, and like maybe like, well, man, like, there's a lot of seats here. Maybe like always leave a seat buffered. Do you not know these things? So you slide over a couple seats, you know, protect your, you know, shield your kids, even some of us. Or do we look at this person in this thought exercise who comes in and sits down? who reeks of desperation, who we know needs the grace and the transforming presence of Christ in their life, and instead of leaning and sliding away, do we lean in? And do we pray for them, that they might be reconciled to God and to be transformed in becoming a part of his people? What would our response be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the undeserved grace and mercy that you have bestowed upon us making us who were far off, who were strangers, who were hopeless, who were without God, a part of your covenant community. Lord, thank you for taking us aliens and reconciling us to both you and to your people, that we might know that there is people out there who can encourage us, who will care for us, who will give us a hug when we need a hug, who will give us a high five when we need a high five. Lord, who uh, is our new family? Lord, this is an undeserved mercy and an undeserved grace, but we thank you that you have given it to us. And we pray that our church would be a church that is marked not by uh, attitudes of self-righteousness or pride, but Lord, a church full of humility. For we know that we did not deserve your grace, and yet you gave it. And you, might you make our hearts able to help those who need you the most. To be willing to sit with the downcast, the, the downtrodden. Those who reek of immorality and point them. Point them to the redeeming work of Christ. Might you work to create at CBC a culture that the world sees your redeemed people, a people who care about you and a people who care about the lost. Lord, this is what we ask and pray. Use us as your covenant community. Build us into a holy dwelling place that speaks and proclaims the goodness of your transforming work, your unifying work, to a world that is isolated and downcast. We ask that you would do this in the name of Christ. Amen.